Content warning. This episode will contain discussion of trauma-related events and impacts, including sexual assault, interpersonal or domestic violence, grief, and loss. Hey everyone, welcome back. So last week we focused on the impacts of trauma prior to incarceration, and today we're going to be continuing our conversation with Jacqueline Williams on the impacts of trauma while incarcerated. Jacqueline has worked extensively with pregnant women in prison, and so much of our conversation today will be centered on their experiences. I'm Bhavna. And I'm Vanilla, And this is Women's Health Incarcerated. So let's actually start today's conversation off by talking more about Jacqueline's journey into this field and what led her to found the Michigan Prison Doula Initiative, which is a nonprofit organization that provides optional doula support and childbirth education to women at Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility. And for those listeners who may not know, a doula is a trained birth coach who provides physical and emotional support to birthing people before, during, and after pregnancy. As we'll learn about more extensively from Jacqueline, giving birth in prison is incredibly traumatizing and difficult. And seeing the lack of physical and emotional support offered to pregnant incarcerated women really sparked Jacqueline's work through MPDI. Additionally, through her work at the American Friends Service Committee, Jacqueline is developing a diversion program for justice-involved pregnant people. The goal of this program is to work with people at the intercept points, such as after getting arrested but before trial or before a felony conviction, to provide support services that are very much lacking. These services include things like parenting education, drug counseling, childbirth education, etc. So that's just a bit more information about Jacqueline's journey, and I think after learning more about what she does, I really began to process the kind of reality that pregnant women experience in correctional facilities, and the safety and comfort that they lack during this time became much more apparent. You're never in a safe place, whether you are at risk from a correctional officer coming and barking at you to another person in your, you know, your cell or room, you know, harming you or being too near to you or stealing from you. A lot of what is absolutely necessary for body healing is to like physically be in a space where you don't feel like you could be harmed at any moment. Incarceration is the antithesis of that. There is no space where you feel okay or you feel safe. I do an enormous amount of my work with people who have done long time in solitary confinement or administrative segregation. Um, That's what a huge part of my work is focused on. And the cyclical nature of feeling constantly caged, like like a literal wounded animal, like a literal caged animal, and then the only interactions you have with other human beings are, you know, either completely outwardly violent or they're just aggressive um, or they're, you know, sort of like top down carceral where you're being told what to do, told what time to do it. You're in a cage for 23 hours a day and let out for an hour of yard time, still in a cage, still in what's essentially considered a dog run. The physiological reactions of those people are I mean, they're totally reptilian. They're totally animalistic. You are constantly fed triggers and your body constantly reacts because there's no other space that you feel safe. When we talk about the trauma to prison pipeline more practically, um, I speak with 
probably 30 incarcerated people a week. Um, it's what I do for my job through letters and um, phone calls, just essentially helping people navigate the, the carceral system, helping people prepare for parole, navigate their health care needs, uh, try to apply for commutations or reliefs of sentence. And what I can tell you is that there is no place more traumatizing than prison, than an institutional setting where you are at risk especially if you're pregnant, especially if you have had, you know, interpersonal trauma in your past of violence, communicable diseases, separation from your family and the rest of your community, you know, social isolation, the toxic stress that comes with literally living in a cage, living behind bars, not being able to make decisions about your own body, about your baby, about your prenatal care, um, you know, not getting this trauma responsive care that we at this point understand that everybody needs, not just, you know, people who are pregnant, but everybody who is in prison, like needs trauma responsive care. So while incarceration is clearly a traumatizing experience in itself, what we want to delve more deeply into during this episode is that the impact of this trauma for women, especially for pregnant women, is unique and not frequently addressed. I think pregnancy and prison is this like microcosm of the of the trauma to prison pipeline because it is like a this picture of intergenerational trauma. If a mom is incarcerated and gives birth, a child is way more likely to become incarcerated themselves. We understand that the entire system is flawed, but when we when we draw it down to the the physiology of a person who is pregnant and who is going to like bring new life into the world while in a room with two armed correctional officers, you start to realize just how dire this situation is right now. And it's not just in prison. It's in detention centers all over the world. It's in jail systems. It's in youth facilities. Teenagers are giving birth in the presence of people who have guns on their hips. I mean, it is, there's, there's nothing more frightening or more triggering, I think, than that. Um, you don't feel any bodily autonomy. You don't feel any safety. You are surrounded by people and people who you don't know if they want to do you harm or not, but they certainly are carrying weapons. So let's just take an example of um, someone who is pregnant in the prison system. Generally, the precarceral lives of women who are pregnant inside have been marked by, you know, abuse, um, poverty, at least some form of physical or sexual violence, um, survival, you know, mechanisms like prostitution um, and stealing, which are, you know, anything that, that raises the adrenaline like that, that will change the physiology of the way that you react to something. And then what we, what we do, uh, as opposed to providing, you know, structural social safety net is um, we consider someone's reactions or someone's behaviors as like a moral failing on their part and not a, um, a reaction to the the whole of their lives or their parents' lives or their great parent grandparents' lives or, you know, anyone who has come before them, like our bodies house um, changes and learn different mechanisms to be able to survive the, the sort of trauma that we're experiencing. If you remember from last week's episode, we try to focus more on this concept of precarceral trauma so that you all would have a better understanding and context of trauma within the incarceration system. So for example, there's this person with the history of trauma, which leads them into situations that could be considered illegal, like using drugs. And then they're often intercepted by the police and end up entangled in the criminal legal system. This is a kind of scenario that Jacqueline will delve further into. 
So a person has a trauma history, then they're intercepted by the police, they're arrested, they either get on probation or they're you know given community service or they're given some sort of stipulation that it's really difficult to follow when you're poor, um, you know, paying for your own supervision, paying for your court costs. They at some point violate probation, um, are brought into a precinct, are tested for pregnancy, and what we see is that judges and other sort of patriarchal structures will be like, well, you're pregnant and you're using drugs, you're going to prison or you're going to jail and you're you're serving out the rest of your pregnancy either in prison or jail um, because we see this as a harm reduction model, right? Um, so that's a that's a really wide background sketch, but it encompasses so many people who end up pregnant in prison or jail. There is there is like a, a thousand holes in the safety net that people fall through and then they end up in this like sort of desperate situation here. It's not everyone that doesn't encompass everyone. There's a lot of, you know, there's other extenuating circumstances, but that that is like a, a blanket of people who generally end up pregnant and incarcerated. So a person is um, given a pregnancy test if they're not visibly pregnant or they don't know they're pregnant. They're given a pregnancy test on intake into the prison. Then a few things happen. They are um, prescribed prenatal vitamins. They're given like an extra snack at night, which is like an apple and a carton of milk. Um, but we all know that the nutritional value of the food that they're given throughout the day is abominable. It's really bad. Um, they are given a bottom bunk detail and essentially that's about it. They're, they're you know, put into one of the units that can house pregnant or postpartum women. And that's about it. That's literally the bare minimum. Yeah, I know. And evidently, the situation just keeps getting worse and worse as the pregnancy continues. After that, um, because of because of all these like traumatic histories in the background, we are placing someone in one of the most traumatizing situations that you can possibly imagine. So we are separating them from any family or support system that they might possibly have. We are relegating their prenatal care to a predetermined, um, you know, set of physicians, circumstances, um, women inside the, the women's prison, there's only one women's prison in Michigan, it's women's here on Valley, um, are given examinations while shackled to the table um, by one male OB. There's no women OBs who work at Women's Huron Valley. It's just one man. And as you can imagine, because of what we talk about, like the body's physiological response, this person might not be abusing them in the way that they were abused, but the, your body can't tell the difference. So the trauma response is cortisol levels go through the roof. The, you know, your adrenaline is through the roof. You're sweating. You're actually, you know, in some cases chained to a table when someone is like examining you vaginally. So all of these things work together to make what we would consider like a high risk or traumatized pregnancy. And there's a lot of research that we can point to that sort of explains that short-term exposure to drugs is way less harmful to a fetus than long-term exposure to like cortisol and trauma response. It will change the way that the baby's DNA works. They will start to engage in these trauma responses because they're their mother is engaging in these trauma responses. And we can look like way into the future for babies who have experienced this level, this like height of, of cortisol and trauma response and find that they are far more likely to be incarcerated themselves. They're way more likely to engage in risky behavior from anything, you know, from driving fast to engaging in street violence. 
um, like with their peers or, um, you know, committing other sorts of, of crimes. So one component of our body's trauma response that I don't think we touched much on in last week's episode is the stress response. Cortisol is considered to be our stress hormone, and adrenaline is the hormone implicated in our flight or fight response. So when a pregnant woman experiences stress, not only is this a result of an immediate trauma response that the body is going through, but the stress also really affects the woman's laboring process as well as the fetus. The hormones of labor follow a cycle where oxytocin levels rise, which causes an increase in endorphins, which leads to what is referred to as labor land. So oxytocin is the hormone that's referred to as the love hormone or cuddle hormone, and endorphins work to suppress pain, which during labor is very critical for the body and allows the woman to reach this mind-out-of-body state. However, Excessive adrenaline levels caused by fear and stress halt the cycle because oxytocin levels automatically decrease and endorphins decrease and then women are left in a lot of pain. But this long-term exposure to cortisol also affects the biological makeup of the fetus. Their body starts producing more of the stress hormones so that in the future, when facing any adverse event, it's harder for individuals to relax or cope because their body is in this prolonged period of stress, and it might even be easier for them to feel more stress compared to others. And all of this can have a severe impact on one's long-term health. Chronic stress has been heavily researched as a factor that can lead to various issues like cardiovascular disease, anxiety, etc., And like Jacqueline was saying, these individuals are also going to be more likely to engage in risky behavior. Since the mom was in the state of hyperarousal and constant stress, the fetus essentially inherits this and is therefore more likely itself to have a lot of the trauma responses that we talked about last week that might lead the child to develop maladaptive behaviors in the future. Also, Keep in mind that having an incarcerated parent is an ACE in itself and may cause these children to go into foster care. So it's not simply these biological factors alone, but additional traumatic experiences that these children are forced into because of the way our system is set up. So going through pregnancy in correctional facilities isn't just traumatic for the mother. It's highly traumatic for the fetus as well. The worst thing that we can do for a traumatized baby like that is then immediately separate them from their mother. You know, within 24 hours, the only sort sense of safety and security that that baby has ever known is now removed completely. And not just removed, but like sent back to prison. And there is so much research and so much evidence that like the mother-baby dyad has to stay together to thrive, to to remove that like security blanket from a baby. I mean, it causes failure to thrive, you know, like birth weights dropping, inability to like eat and consume. It causes all sorts of digestive problems. If you have a a baby who has had exposure to drugs or who has had exposure to extreme trauma um, and you don't even give someone the opportunity to breastfeed and, you know, give all of those microbes, give all of that like biological information to the baby of how to like fight diseases, um, how to like boost immune systems, stay healthy. It's just about the worst thing you can do. And that's what happens in our carceral setting. And what's unfortunate is that giving birth in prison is not that uncommon. According to a study published in the American Journal of Public Health, 
which included 57% of the U.S. prison population, results found that 3.8% of newly admitted women were pregnant and that, quote, in a single year, incarcerated women had 753 live births, 46 miscarriages, 4 stillbirths, and 11 abortions, end quote. These newborns are then further traumatized by the incarceration system if they're not allowed to have skin-to-skin contact with their mothers right after birth. Something that we have in Michigan is this rule um, that the warden of the facility can make a determination of whether or not there is contact between mother and baby. So if a mom is determined to be, I'm totally putting this in quotes, at risk to her infant or a risk to her infant, the warden can say that the mom and baby can't have contact with each other, meaning baby is born into the doctor's hands, shown to the mother, and taken out of the room. This does happen. It is, I I struggle to find the words for what it is. It's torture. It's insane. It's inhumane. There's so many problems with it. And one of the biggest problems is there's no mental health professionals used in making this determination. And secondly, there is no established protocol for what causes this determination. So what sparks the decision being made is if there has ever been a CPS case on this person. It could be any number of things that cause openings of CPS cases. Poverty causes openings of CPS cases. Poverty cases get turned into neglect stories. Or say like driving under the influence when there is a child in the car. You're not intending to cause harm to a child, but you have a serious drug problem or a serious alcohol problem. Um, Driving to make a drug deal or something like that, even if it's in a relatively controlled, safe environment, if your child is in the car, you can get a CPS case opened on you, which we all know like people don't sell drugs for fun. They sell drugs to get by and, and be able to eat essentially. So any of these things can happen that the warden who the past three wardens at the women's facility have been men who have clearly never given birth, they get to determine based on no mental health or medical professional's advice because the medical professionals at St. Joe's, the St. Joe's Hospital, always argue against no contact orders, whether or not a baby can be placed on a mother's chest and have skin to skin immediately afterwards. And skin to skin contact is crucial for a newborn's physiological and psychological well-being. For example, A study published in the Journal of Early Human Development found that continuous skin-to-skin contact resulted in lower cortisol levels in infants. Between the mother-baby dyad, when a baby is first born, there are like mental, emotional, and physiological reasons why we like to keep mom and baby together. Um, Skin-to-skin is good for like temperature regulation, the development of colostrum and breast milk, the familiarity of the heartbeat and the closeness of, you know, being next to your mother, next to the person who birthed you, as well as um, mitigating some of the outside circumstances that a hospital causes, like sort of shock in bright lights and loud voices and lots of people being around. Um, It's just like a much, much smoother transition when you are allowed to hold your baby to your chest and when you know your baby can sort of do the natural process of rooting around to find your nipple um, you guys are exchanging all sorts of you know oxytocin chemicals which are mitigating some of those elevated cortisol levels um, especially if it's a birth it's a high-risk birth or a traumatized birth so your bodies are actually like speaking to each other while social factors like growing up without a mother in the household or 
growing up in the foster care system can increase the chances of an individual being incarcerated, something else that's been under discussion is the influences of intergenerational trauma on the potential likelihood of someone ending up in jail or prison. So intergenerational trauma can be considered like a legacy of trauma, where exposure to levels of trauma can impact people across generations. And it's important to keep in mind that intergenerational trauma itself is an aspect or a byproduct of structural and systemic racism. The way that our society is set up to perpetuate violence and oppression against certain communities, especially black and brown communities, results in these entire groups of people experiencing trauma across generations. The things that we can't actually point to are the intergenerational trauma patterns, the ways that those like come about in your body. And so, you know, I would argue that even if we can't identify a number of ACEs in the precarceral lives of people, we can understand the way that like history and essentially white supremacy has affected their bodies and um, the bodies of their families. So if we're specifically talking about women, I would say that the two biggest factors that we see are parental abuse, um, sexual abuse, or like partner violence, interpersonal partner violence. And when you are from a community that doesn't offer counseling on a sliding scale or free counseling, that doesn't have any domestic violence shelters uh, where you can live and feel safe, there are a lot of, a lot, a lot of women who are pregnant in prison who come from the west and north side of the state, which are more rural communities that just don't offer social safety net things like this. Like they don't offer points where we can intercept this pattern. We just end up putting them in prison because there's nowhere else for them to go. And we haven't talked a lot about this because I want to be clear, I'm not a therapist and I'm not a physician, but all of these things exacerbate underlying mental health conditions or cause them. And so a lot of people are dealing with severe and persistent mental illness, also their interpersonal trauma, also their generational trauma. Um, and then we put them into a carceral setting where they are separated from any sort of community resources or you know safety that they might otherwise feel. Right. The more we talk about it, the more all these different pieces of the puzzle are kind of fitting together in my head to paint this picture of the very layered ways in which the incarceration system harms individuals both on the inside and on the outside. We don't provide individuals with the proper support that they need before they get incarcerated, and once we do, we just pile on to their trauma. Clearly, pregnant women who are incarcerated face complex layers of trauma. And even more, as we've discussed, a majority of incarcerated women have a mental illness, Previous mental illnesses, such as post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, have been shown to increase the risk of postpartum depression, and additional factors, such as child abuse, are associated with thoughts of self-harm and suicide in the postpartum period. The rates of postpartum depression in carceral settings skyrocket. You're trying to physically heal from having a baby, and emotionally and mentally, you are separated from that baby, which every animal instinct in you is just railing against. Um, there's also so much shame and guilt associated with it, especially if your baby has to be put in the foster care system, if you don't have a member of your family or a friend who can take the baby. The other issue is that, as we talked about, like a lot of women who are incarcerated and will give birth have substance abuse issues, and some of them are on methadone treatment or medically assisted treatments called MAT. So what we do in Michigan 
in the state prison is that we will give pregnant women medically assisted treatment because removing that might cause a miscarriage. But as soon as they are returned to the hospital, they are cut cold turkey from medically assisted treatment. Meaning, first of all, we have seen this woman as nothing more than a carrier of this baby, and we are not trying to protect her at all. We are only trying to protect the baby. But that we have determined that it's either too expensive or too big of an issue um, logistically to provide someone with the medically assisted treatment that every medical journal in the entire world would tell you is best practice for weaning someone off of a drug addiction. What I have seen with my own eyes, which could make me weep on this podcast is a person giving birth to the baby at 24 hours being separated coming back into the prison facility and essentially withdrawing in the most violent and painful way from medically assisted treatment that has been dosed up throughout their pregnancy because there's increased percentage of blood there's a higher body weight so we will dose women up on this medically assisted treatment baby is born, they're returned to the hospital, they're at a higher dose than they might have ever been at, and that's it. The crash comes. It leaves people immobile, unable to walk, unable to um, drink or eat, like left in the infirmary where they're by themselves and completely separated from any sort of friendship they might have made inside with other people who are pregnant. And the situation makes people suicidal. I mean, it makes it's it's the lowest point you can imagine someone being at. And it would take like maybe a four-day wean to make that not happen, and we don't do it. There's a lot of folks who are arguing against that, but that's what we do. We are especially a society when someone has been deemed a moral failure, like being pregnant in prison, who thinks that no accommodations are necessary for the people who are in this situation. It's, it's really ugly, and it's against all medical recommendation and advice, be it from substance abuse counselors, therapists, general practitioners, but especially like OBGYNs. This is not what we would do with people in the free world. So in order to improve the conditions of confinement, particularly for pregnant women in prison, Jacqueline has created initiatives to mitigate trauma experiences for these individuals through her work in MPDI. So we implemented a program, the Michigan Prison Doula Initiative, where they are now assigned to a doula. Um, they get access to a weekly like peer counselor uh, who's like a highly trained doula and childbirth educator. They get the childbirth education class. And then one of our doulas has also been running a parenting class for a really long time within the facility since way before MPDI existed. Um, so the services are more comprehensive now. But what they don't get, again, is choice about their prenatal care. Um, they don't get freedom of bodily movement when they need to. They, they can't exercise whenever they want to. They're not getting the you know nutritional food that we think pregnant women should have. And then from day one, they are constantly faced with this idea that as soon as their baby is born, essentially, it will be taken from them and then they will be returned to prison. So there's this enormous push and pull uh, described to me over and over again by women who like at the end of their pregnancies are like, oh my gosh, I just don't want to be pregnant anymore. Like I'm, my feet hurt. I'm sleeping on a paper thin mattress. I don't get an extra pillow. I don't, you know, like I'm very sore. I'm in a lot of physical pain. I can't walk around. I have a high risk pregnancy. I have, you know, high blood pressure because of this food I'm eating. I just don't want to be pregnant anymore. And also I am terrified to not be pregnant anymore. I know 
that my baby will be born and I will be returned to this prison to heal physically, emotionally, mentally. And I'm, I'm just so afraid. Like, I'm so afraid of having my baby taken. So Jacqueline, why is it important to consider these issues currently impacting incarcerated people, specifically incarcerated women? Prisons are paid for by our tax dollars. It's over $2 billion budget that we put into the state every single year to pay for the, the prisons and correction systems. And yet we have no idea what's going on in there. And part of our work at the AFSC is to really like reclaim prisons as public spaces, like allow people to go inside and see what's happening. If we're paying for it, I should understand that people are not being systemically tortured inside like they are in solitary confinement. And I don't have that reassurance at all. I, in fact, know that they are being tortured inside and that other prisons around the world do not allow long-term segregation and solitary confinement like we have in this country. They don't allow women and babies to be separated immediately upon birth. In fact, there's plenty of places around the country that have prison nurseries where babies can be kept with, you know, with parents. And I would argue that non-carceral settings are the better option and that we shouldn't be trying to make prison better. We should be trying to develop alternatives to prisons, but that's an abolitionist standpoint. If we are always focused on reform, on, on making prisons the best place that we can be, then we're not focusing on like completely circumventing the carceral system as, as it is. But I have had the conversation with so many people, especially when I was going into the women's facility, like, you know, this is what I do. I work with pregnant women who are incarcerated. And so many people say, oh, my God, I never even thought about that. I never even thought that there were pregnant women who were inside. I guess that makes sense. There must be pregnant women inside the facility. But, like, it's never crossed my mind. And so if you can't even imagine that world, it would be very difficult for you to imagine the treatment and the trauma that occurs along, you know, with those realities. The reality is that people who are incarcerated are subjected to the worst kinds of treatment. We're allowing our youth to be exposed to extremely traumatic environments that are a product of structural and intergenerational trauma, and also do not make supportive services readily available to help with addiction, employment, and mental and physical health. And then people are incredibly affected by all of these awful things that are happening, and their body reacts. It reacts in a completely natural and adaptive way. It reacts, and rather than recognizing how natural that reaction was, or even simply recognizing the pain that this person has gone through, we decide to lock them up in a place that is anything but healing, safe, or rehabilitative. We subject them to even more trauma. But what they really need is mental health support. What they really need is a stable job or to attend a school where police aren't present or a safe haven to escape their abuser. Over half of men and women in America report experiencing at least one traumatic event in their lifetime. It is absolutely critical to offer trauma-informed services, especially in communities that are marked with various forms of trauma. Best practices and principles for trauma-informed care involves prioritizing cultural competency and needs-based care. It is crucial that services are informed directly by the people being served and work to minimize re-traumatization. 
Using an empowerment model to ensure that the individuals feel like they have control over their actions will make these services more accessible and effective for these survivors. Apart from trauma-specific services, access to parenting services, healthcare, mental health and substance abuse services, to name a few, needs to greatly improve for poor communities and those of color. Individuals affected by trauma need to be involved in the creation and organization of these services so that they are effectively addressing the needs of those directly impacted. In fact, through AFSC, Jacqueline has been utilizing these principles of needs-based care and services and has been working at the forefront of some legislative issues related to confinement issues and shackling policies for incarcerated women, specifically those in the women's prison in Michigan. What we are doing specifically for the women's prison is we are introducing legislation, and by the time the podcast is out, it will already have been introduced, which addresses the conditions of confinement for pregnant people inside Women's Huron Valley. For purposes of this, I might say women over and over again, only because, um, you know, as of now, 100% of the women that we've worked with or 100% of the people that we've worked with identify as cis women. Um, but I do understand that not all pregnant people are women or identify as women. So I just want to put that out there. So um, we are introducing legislation that addresses a number of things. The first one is a breastfeeding program. There are several other states that have breastfeeding programs. We understand that breast milk is absolutely medicine to um, especially high-risk babies or babies who are can't be in contact or have attachment with their mothers. Um, it also addresses shackling. So shackling is the process of handcuffing or chaining women during the labor and pregnancy process. The First Step Act officially banned the practice of shackling in federal facilities, unless a correctional officer considers it appropriate to prevent serious harm or potential escape. But according to a Harvard Law Bill of Health article, state laws on shackling still very much differ, and the majority of women who are incarcerated are held in state facilities. The article notes that as of March 4, 2020, quote, 32 states have some form of restriction on pregnant shackling, but only 13 ban it broadly throughout pregnancy, labor, postpartum, and during transport. Only 9 states cover juveniles, only 20 states allow the physician to immediately remove the restraints if necessary, and only 9 require that correctional staff stand outside the room for privacy considerations during childbirth, end quote. So right now, this is also to clear up any confusion because there's a lot of confusion about this. In Michigan, we do not shackle women during active labor. We don't shackle women during childbirth. However, we do shackle women, pregnant women, all the way through pregnancy if they're being transported somewhere, in transport to the hospital to give birth, up until active labor is determined by a physician, then the shackles are removed, and after active labor is over, shackles can be put back on almost immediately. So the physicians at St. Joe's, who are fantastic humans, they often argue against this and push against this and, and talk about the, you know, the absolute nonsensical nature of putting shackles on a person who has just gone through labor and giving birth, especially since there are two armed correctional officers in the room. But it is absolutely possible and does happen that people are shackled almost immediately after childbirth while trying to bond with a baby. Keeping in mind, the vast majority of women are incarcerated for low-level drug crimes. They are often substance abusers and not axe murderers. But I would argue that even people who have committed violent crimes, 
we have done exhaustive research on whether any of these women try to intentionally harm their babies after childbirth and cannot find one case. We cannot find a case where this has happened. So flight risk, I mean, does a woman who has just gone through labor or had a C-section have the capability of getting up, overpowering two armed guards in their room, running down the hallway and escaping the hospital before anyone can catch her? I would argue, no, that that's a, a physical impossibility. But we, we still will do it. So we will shackle women immediately after birth. Uh, if the physicians can't get the correctional officers not to. And then we will shackle again in transport. Even if a person has had a C-section, they will be shackled with a belly chain and transported back. The amount of issues that <laughs> that come with this are innumerable. So our legislation addresses not shackling anyone who is determined to be pregnant up until six weeks postpartum. There's absolutely no reason for it. There are things that you just can't understand about the facility unless you've been inside of it. Seen what happens, go inside of the infirmary, inside of the housing facilities, and, and actually understand the nuances of the facility. I had done enormous amounts of research on the facility before I actually went inside, and there's nothing like going inside and understanding it, you know, face-to-face with the folks who are experiencing it at the moment. So... Both of these bills are, you know, we think are incredibly important. We actually already have, as of today's date, the 4th of February, we already have um, a blueback for the oversight bill that has already been introduced, and we are waiting to drop the conditions of confinement legislation, which we assume is not going to go over that well with DOC, but we are hoping, <laughs> hoping that it's not going to be too big of a, um, too big of an ask. Yeah. Really, we're not doing anything that isn't aligning with best practice and the recommendations from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the World Health Organization. Um, you know, these are massive international bodies that make these best practice recommendations, and nothing that we're doing is outside of any of those recommendations. They're, you know, we're not asking for much, um, just for humanity and childbirth, essentially. Jacqueline, thank you so much. As of March 2020, these bills were already proposed to the Michigan State Senate. If you're interested in learning more about them, we'll be linking some of the articles you can look into on this episode's transcript notes, so be sure to check those out on our website. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. We hope you've learned something new about trauma and its wide-ranging impacts pre-carcerally and during incarceration. Next week, we will be delving into the intersection between police brutality, gender, and race. Until then. Women's Health Incarcerated works to raise awareness about the experiences of women within our current incarceration system, with a primary focus on health-related issues. The podcast can be found on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and if you want to learn more about our episodes, view the transcripts to see where we get our information, or find different ways that you could get involved, please visit www.winkthemovement.org. That's www.whincthemovement.org.